If you're here for the first time with us, know that we are so glad that you're here. I just want you to know that we, uh, we're a church that will do and wants to do whatever it takes to reach our community with the gospel. Uh, you know, this past week, I just want to take a minute and celebrate Serve Week. You know, this past week, uh, we, had, we, we served uh, the homeless with two different ministries. Uh, we served a meal to international students. We delivered over 40 gifts to foster care families in our area. You know, there are, th- just, in, just in Hillsborough County alone, there are 3,100 children, uh, at least, under the state's care and supervision. Uh, and we were able to just serve a small piece of that uh, this past week by just kind of helping uh, uh, one organization that serves about 60 different families in our community. You know, we have a strategic focus towards the poor, the orphan, the widow, the unwed mother, and the refugee in, in the Tampa Bay area. And Serve Week is a major part of that for us. Um, you know, Serve Week, it, it, it is the starting line for how we reach our community. It's not uh, the finish line. We want to do whatever we can to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our community. And and we pray, one of the things that we pray for often is that our community would mourn our loss if something were ever to happen uh, because of the impact that we have on our community. This has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with wanting to be the hands and feet of Jesus uh, to our community. You know, one of our core values, it's missional urgency. And we have officially entered into a season that is mission critical. You know, over the next 21 days leading up to Easter, New City Church, it is go time, okay? Uh, For whatever reason, in our culture, this is the season that people are most open to spiritual things. And on Easter Sunday, people are way more willing to come with you to church than almost any other day of the year. And so we want to do whatever we can to capitalize on the opportunity so that uh, they can come and hear the gospel and be saved. You know, there are people all around us that are searching for hope. And what better day to invite someone that is searching for hope than to come and hear about the hope of the resurrection that we just sang about on Easter Sunday. A new city, uh, to prepare us for this as a church, we're committing to 21 days of prayer and fasting starting today that we as a church would be praying for God to move and to save, that God would make us a missionally urgent people to do whatever it takes to get the gospel in front of people for them to to hear about Jesus and to be saved. You know, I've committed myself personally uh, to try to be the lead inviter in our church for Easter. I'm not kidding. I'm praying for me and my family that we would be able to invite uh, 100 people to church on Easter. That's about 20 people per person in my family. Maybe they'll come, maybe they won't, I don't know but it won't be because I did not invite them. And so if their eternity is on the line, may we do whatever it takes because the mission of God is urgent. We're planning to create ways to create more space in here so that your friends will have a seat. Or maybe for you, you've got two to three people that you really want to come and God has put those few people on your heart. And so I want to call you today to begin praying for them, to commit the next 21 days to pray for their souls. You know, I'm, 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 I'm calling us to pray, to fast, to give up something, maybe a meal, maybe social media, TV, soda, sweets, something, whatever it is. But can you pray and fast for, these, for, for their salvation for the next 21 days? So who are these three to four people that you're going to pray and fast for, praying for God to save them on Easter? And y'all, tonight... We're kicking off this 21 days of prayer and fasting with a night of prayer and worship that is right here in this room, right here at Learning Gate. Y'all, if you have never been to one of these, you have got to come. 
Because without a doubt, these nights of prayer and worship are the nights when God fills us with faith and then moves in mighty ways, ways among us. Like, I kid you not, over the past two years, these nights of prayer and worship, every single one of them, I can look back and see how God has worked and moved in unique and powerful ways because when we gather together to pray corporately, pleading for God's help to move among us, you know what happens? God moves. I mean, as you sit in your seats today, there's no doubt in my mind you are an answer to prayer, each one of you from one of these nights. We have been praying for you, and we didn't even know it yet. And now we have faces and names for, God answer, for God's answered prayers. New City Church, there's no doubt about it. We are utterly dependent on the power of God. And so we are praying for people. We're, we are a praying people. Like we pray bold, crazy prayers to a big and powerful God. And in 21 days on Easter Sunday, y'all listen, God will be saving people literally all over the world. Like it will happen, no questions asked. It happens every Easter all over the world. And I'm just praying that we can be a small part of how God moves and saves. So if you're a college student or a single adult, maybe you're thinking about uh, traveling for Easter, what if God is calling you to stay here this Easter and invite your friends to come and hear the gospel? Again, who is God calling you to pray for and to invite? Maybe you can invite 100 people. Maybe it's 10 or 15, or maybe God is calling you to just one. But who will it be? And again, you know where it all starts. It doesn't start with us doing. It starts with us pleading to God in prayer, to move in power, praying and pleading for a harvest of salvation. Y'all, Jesus came down into the world to be a light for the world, and we just get to simply be a small part of shining the light of Christ to a world that is desperate for hope, which is what we've been seeing Jesus teach in the Gospel of John over the past seven months. I know we've been praying, as the Gospel of John directs us, that many would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, they may have life in his name. So over the past seven months, we've seen Jesus teaching publicly about who he is and why he came. He's taught and he's performed miracles and signs showing that he is truly the Christ, the Son of God. And so we've gone through the first 12 chapters of John. And at the end of John 12, starting in verse 44, we, read, we would read a summary statement of all that Jesus taught and has done. And in that summary statement, I want to highlight the first two verses, and just put a period on Jesus's public ministry. Look, follow along with me, starting in verse 44 of John 12. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees, uh, who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And so if we kept reading this summary statement at the end of John 12, we'd see that Jesus came from God and he came in God's authority and Jesus's entire life was walking in obedience to God's direction. And today we'll see all of this continue to play out in a painfully remarkable way. Seeing that God had a plan from the beginning of time to send his son Jesus down to earth with a specific mission and a specific purpose. And over the next several weeks, the mission and purpose that we're going to look at is going to be seen in full effect because we're going to be seeing and looking at the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion of Jesus as we lead up to Resurrection Sunday in 21 days. 
And so today, as we leave chapter 12 of John, we're going to fast forward all the way to John chapter 18 and, and put the cross of Jesus on full display. And as we skip John 13 to 17, I want you to just have this picture in your head where Jesus walks into a house for dinner, starting in John 13. And then in John 18, Jesus then walks out of that same house later that same night where we're going to pick up today. And so John 13 to 17, it's one long dinner with Jesus and his disciples where Jesus teaches his disciples right before his death. It's Jesus in the upper room with his disciples instructing them on how to live after he dies. And you know, this teaching is so rich. So we're going to come back to it uh, and teach through it this summer. And I'm really excited about it. But today, I want you to imagine that Jesus walks into that house. He spends several hours with his disciples. And then later that same night, Jesus walks out of that same house, which is where we pick up today. And so let's look at John 18, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And so Jesus, he leaves the house he finished teaching his disciples and walks across the brook Kidron, which was like a natural drain that ran from the temple to a ravine down of water. Uh, and, the, and at this point of the year, that the water was likely red because of all the blood sacrifices that were draining down from the temple during the time of Passover. And so as they cross this likely red stream of water, while it was still dark at night, they enter into a garden, which uh, we know from the other gospels, it was likely the, the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. And as we get more into John 18, I want you to know that these next few chapters are dark chapters. Like this setting that we're seeing in John 18 sets the scene for the next few weeks leading up to Easter. Like these are Jesus' darkest moments. But I do want you to know, as we've said, that this is why Jesus came. Yes, these next few chapters and weeks are dark chapters seeing the arrest and trial and death of Jesus. But remember, as we read back in John 12, Jesus came to be light in the darkness. And if Jesus did not enter into the darkness, he could not have been a light in the darkness. And so as we think through these things, we need to remember that during this whole time of Jesus's life, Jesus is not asking us for our pity. He doesn't want us to pity him. No, Jesus is asking for our faith. Because of everything that we'll see and read and teach, we need to see that all of this was planned. Like Jesus knew it would happen, and yet he did it anyways. And why? Because in all the things he'll go through are things that each of us sitting in this room or watching online continue to go through and will continue to go through. And yet in each of these hard things we'll see today, there is a silver lining of hope. So today we're going to see three different encounters with three different people. And in these three different encounters, we'll see that Jesus, he was betrayed, he was denied, and he was questioned. So Jesus, the son of God who created the world, who came to rescue his people as the Messiah, who healed the sick and raised the dead, who was the greatest and most humble leader that ever walked this earth, even he was betrayed, denied, and questioned. And just maybe you can relate. If you've ever experienced betrayal, rejection, or if you've been questioned, I pray that you would listen up today because, listen, there is hope for you. Which leads us to our main idea. Very simply put, Jesus endured betrayal, denial, and questioning on the road to the cross. 
And so we'll look at each of these three encounters with three different people. But I want to point out to you about this is that these three people, Judas, Peter, and the high priest, they were supposed to be on team Jesus. Like they were on Jesus's side or supposed to be. Like Judas and uh, Peter, they were just at dinner with Jesus. And then the high priest, like if anyone should have known that Jesus was the Messiah, it should have been the high priest. Again, these three men, they were supposed to be on Jesus' side, but they betrayed him, denied him, and questioned him. And you know what I think we all know maybe too well? It's usually those that are closest to us that can hurt us the most. And that's what we're going to see today with Jesus. Those that were supposed to be on Jesus' side and in his corner, they betrayed him, denied him, and rejected him. And yet in all of it, he saw it coming. And he endured it anyways. And why? Because he knew the hope that was on the other side of it. Again, so if you've experienced betrayal, denial, or questioning, maybe a good friend betraying you or a child or parent rejecting you, or maybe those who are supposed to be supporting you like a spouse or a teacher or a coach or a boss or a pastor, not supporting you, but rather questioning you. If you know these things, maybe too well, I want you to hear from me today that there is hope. And Jesus, he can sympathize with you because he knows what it's like. And because of that, he can care for you well in it. New City Church, the agony of the cross, as we'll see today, it was more than physical pain and blood. The agony of the cross for Jesus, the worst part for Jesus was likely the emotional and mental pain that he endured. And the hard reality of this, like I've said, is that I think we all get this, unfortunately, far too well. The agony of the cross came with a road of mental and emotional turmoil. The road to the cross was met by the agony of betrayal. It was met by denial and questioning. And the crazy part about all of it was that Jesus knew all of it ahead of time. Jesus saw it coming, and yet he still endured it. And in all of this today, we'll see our three points. Number one, uh, Judas betrayed Jesus. Number two, Peter denied Jesus. And the high priest questioned Jesus. Three men that were supposed to be on team Jesus betrayed him, denied him, and questioned him. Again, Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. And the high priest questioned Jesus. So let's go ahead and read our first encounter with Judas. Look starting in verse two. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So Jesus, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Seeing number one, Judas betrayed Jesus. So Jesus went into the garden and Judas knew that Jesus would be at this garden because that's where Jesus went often. 
It was Jesus' place, and Judas had just been at dinner with Jesus. You know, we see in John chapter 13 that Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, and uh, Jesus actually told Judas in chapter 13, verse 27, that what he's going to do, to do it quickly, and we see here that Judas, he obeyed Jesus. Jesus told him to do this quickly, and right after Jesus leaves the dinner, the very next thing that happens is what we just read. And again, this was not a mistake. And this was not out of God's hand and power. This was all known and expected. So Judas got a band of soldiers, it says, and they came with torches and lanterns and weapons. And Jesus looked at each of them and said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus says back, I'm him, I'm your guy. But I want you to notice uh, the way he said it in verse five. He said, I am he. That was Jesus saying, I'm the great I am. And when Jesus said, I am he, to translate that for us, he was saying, I am the God that created the world. I'm the God that was deeply powerful and deeply personal. I'm the God that freed Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. I'm the God who brought the 10 plagues and then parted the Red Sea. And my people walked through on dry ground. And those soldiers that were coming after God's people back in the Exodus story, they were destroyed by the Red Sea. And not just the soldiers, but the thousands of soldiers and their horses and their chariots. Like the thousands and thousands of soldiers that were crushed under the hand of God. And so Jesus is saying to this small band of soldiers in the garden of Gethsemane with their little torches and podunk weapons, hey, I'm that God. I am he. You know what happens to these soldiers? What do they do? Well, it says in verse six, they drew back and fell to the ground, which <laughs> sounds about right because they knew they were in trouble. They just encountered the God of the universe. They knew the Exodus story. They knew the great I am and his power. They knew they had no chance, just like the soldiers of Egypt. And in this moment, I'd like to think they expected to be struck down dead. All the while, cold, hard-hearted Judas just sat there and observed it like a cold stone wall. You know, back in chapter 13, verse 27, uh, while at this dinner, it said Satan had entered into Judas. Like, just let that sink in and settle as we think about this moment. Because I want you to think about this moment right now in this garden because we have a cosmic spiritual showdown between good and evil staring at each other square in the eyes. So Judas representing Satan and Jesus representing God the Father. And here they are in this cosmic divine moment facing each other. And in my limited finite mind, you know what I would think would happen in this moment? I would think that Jesus would take their little peace shooting weapons and strike them dead while his enemy, Satan, is sitting there watching. But that's not what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Well, he obeyed his father's plan and said to them again, while they were on the ground, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them again, I am he. And if you're seeking after me, let these men go, meaning speaking of his disciples. And something else I want to point out here is that we see Jesus protecting his disciples in this moment. Like he was watching over them. He was shepherding them while he was being betrayed. You know, in John chapter 17, right before this, we would see that Jesus was praying for his disciples. He was praying for their protection. And here in John 18, we see Jesus keeping his word. 
And so Jesus, even in the middle of his betrayal, even in the middle of his darkest moment, Jesus was still the good shepherd. Just let that sit. Like no matter where you are today, if you are in Christ, if you are following Jesus, you have a good shepherd that wants to care for you and protect you and to watch over you. Like even in your darkest moments, Jesus is still your good shepherd. So again, yes, Jesus was betrayed by Judas, but not because it was outside of God's plan. No, it was totally inside of God's plan. And in that cosmic showdown between good and evil, Satan was playing checkers while Jesus was playing chess. Satan saw the opportunity to take his pawn by betraying Jesus, but Jesus used the betrayal as a means to get the enemy under checkmate. And so I want to be careful here, because by no means am I saying that people being betrayed is God's desire. But as we read our Bible, there is no doubt about it. From the very first book of the Bible, seeing in Genesis 50, we see that what the enemy means for evil, God uses for good. Again, Satan is playing checkers while Jesus is playing chess. Because listen, Jesus going to the garden of betrayal to to be betrayed by one of his disciples, it set in motion the salvation of the world. Christian, I want you to hear that today as an unshakable confidence that no matter what God has brought you through or what God will take you through, or no matter what you're in right now in this very moment, God's word is clear for us. What our enemy intends for evil, God turns it and uses it for our good. Listen, you may not believe it or see it or feel it right now, but take heart, Christian. Every setback in your life, God uses as a deposit into the bank account of Christ's likeness in your life. No matter the circumstance, no matter the illness, no matter the hardship, no matter the betrayal, I want you to hear from me today that God, in his infinite wisdom, wants to use your struggle and hardship for his divine purposes and for your good. What the enemy means for evil, God uses for our good. Again, the enemy is playing checkers while Jesus is playing chess. And if God, in his infinite wisdom, can use the betrayal of Judas and the crucifixion of his son for the ultimate good of the world, we can have an unshakable confidence that as his children, that as his adopted children, grafted in through believing in Jesus, that God will do the same for us. Again, I don't know when or how or in what way God will do this or when we will even realize it. But we can know that God sees all and knows all and God is working all things together for our good, as Paul says in Romans 8, 28. And I can tell you from personal experience that without a doubt, my most shaping moments in my life have come on the heels of my hardest moments in my life and it did not feel good in the moment. Listen, I know this is hard, but it is so true. If you want to learn and grow and be stretched, God's plan for you is likely to send you into wilderness university and be pruned. But fear not, Christian, because although it may be hard, God's grace, it will be sweet. Because those who have been through the treasury of trial have a wealth of treasure to share with you and and, and with the world. And if you're in college or right out of college or you're young in your faith, listen to me, the best thing you can do is to sit with someone and live life with someone who knows what long-suffering looks like. 
with someone who's been to the garden of betrayal, who has been to Wilderness University and can still say, the rock of Jesus is my stronghold. Who can say with an unshakable confidence that the word of God is sweeter and the glory of God is greater because I was pruned in the garden of betrayal. You know, I so desperately want us to get this as a church. Do you know what matures a Christian? It's not only Bible knowledge and it's not simply Bible studies. Those are good and helpful and we need them and we do them. But do you know what matures a Christian? It's suffering and hardship that is found in the garden of betrayal. And then clinging to the hope of God's word and remembering the light and running to the light in the middle of your darkest moment, that's what matures a Christian. Yes, God's word is essential, but it's one thing to know God's word and it's an entirely different thing to depend on it as your very source of life. I pray all the time that we as a church will, yes, know the word, but not just know it, but utterly depend on it. The garden of betrayal is dark, but the light of Jesus shines brighter. So again, let me ask, what does your garden of betrayal look like? And how may God use it for his good purposes? New City Church, this is hard stuff, but this is the world we live in. And I am committed to preach the hard things and talk about the hard things so we'll be ready and able to endure because a light and fluffy Christianity, it just does not endure. So that said, let's look at the next two uh, people to see what else we can learn from Jesus' darkest moment. Look at verse 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And let's keep reading. Look at verse 12, 13, and 14. So the band of soldiers and their captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So here we're introduced to our next two guys, Peter and Caiaphas, which, who was the, Caiaphas was the high priest. Well, what does Peter do? He cuts a dude's ear off. And those soldiers, they don't like it. And so they arrest Jesus and take him to the high priest, Caiaphas. And just quite frankly, as a side note, you know, I've wondered what this says about Peter's sword skills. Like he's either really good, really precise, or he's just really bad. Like maybe he was trying to cut off the guy's head and maybe he missed and he got his ear or he's just really good with the sword. I don't know. But knowing Peter as a fisherman and not a trained soldier and knowing Peter as the guy that's a little bit of a bonehead at times, who's always messing up, who's not the most calculated guy, like I've got my suspicions on his swordsmanship. But to be fair, we don't really know. So Peter chops off the high priest's servant's ear and Jesus tells him to put his sword away. And then he says something significant. Jesus says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? which shows us yet again that all of this was given to Jesus by God the Father. So Jesus allows the soldiers to arrest him and they take him to the high priest. And thus we have our two guys, Peter and Caiaphas, the high priest, for our next two points. Look starting at verse 15 to see more of our guy Peter. So Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. 
Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servant and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And so Peter, and it says another disciple, which was likely the author of John, they were following uh, Jesus to the high priest. And while they were there, they saw a servant girl. And while she's there, she asked bonehead Peter uh, if he was a disciple. And Peter said, I am not. So what did Peter do? Number two, Peter denied Jesus. But it wasn't just once. Because as Jesus was being questioned by the high priest uh, that we'll look at more in a few minutes, Peter was standing out by a fire getting warm. And as uh, we read a few verses later, starting down in verse 25, look what it says. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you, are, are you, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. And so the servant girl, uh, he first asked if he was a disciple. He, Peter said no, uh, and then as we just read, someone else asked the same question, and he, Peter said no again. And then a relative of the guy who hit, G, Peter just cut his ear off asked, uh, didn't I just see you in the garden? And Peter yet again denied Jesus. And then the old rooster crowed, uh, just like Jesus said would happen back in John 13. So three times, Peter, a follower of Jesus, denied that he was associated with Jesus. He, would, he denied that he was his disciples and that he was with him. And what's crazy about all, all this, like I said, is that back in chapter 13, right after Jesus predicted Judas' betrayal, he predicted G Peter's denial. So again, Jesus knew that Peter would deny him. And I want you to remember, Peter is the guy that said he would lay down his life for Jesus back in John 13 just a few hours before this moment. And he showed his faith by chopping off a guy's ear. There's a guy, a, a, a theologian named Calvin said about this, Peter showed his faith with his sword, but not with his mouth. And y'all, we need both. We need to show faith with our words and our actions. And I want you to think about the life of Peter for just a second. Because Peter, he's a special guy. You know, it would be easy for us to say in this moment, we can think, oh, fearful Peter. Oh, it's bonehead Peter again. But let's remember back, Peter just chopped a dude's ear off for Jesus and the guy has walked on water. Peter was one of Jesus's biggest fans and encouragers. In fact, Peter was the most talked about disciple in all four gospels. Yes, he was reproved the most by Jesus. Yes, he was impulsive at times, but he also greatly encouraged Jesus. Peter was the bullish, bonehead disciple that always needed correction, but Peter got things done, and he often got his hands slapped. Like Peter was the loud extrovert that had high highs and low lows, and here in John 18, he's experiencing, Peter is experiencing his lowest moment. He has denied Jesus three times with his mouth. A guy that Jesus has shown himself to over and over again. He's revealed himself in his character, maybe to Peter more than any others. And here he's denied Jesus three times, a guy that Jesus invested in, uh, and Peter just said, nope, I'm not his guy. Which reminds me of Russell Wilson has done to my alma mater, NC State. 
Totally denied NC State as his college football team, but that's beside the point. And so on one side, this is a dark moment for Jesus, but on the other side, this is what I want us to get. There is an incredible redemption for Peter after this, and it's remarkable. Because you know who Jesus spoke to after his resurrection and ends this book talking to? It's Peter. Do you know who preaches at Pentecost to see 3,000 people saved in a day? Peter. You know who later wrote one of the greatest letters on persevering hardship and persecution? Peter. Right, the guy that stuck his foot in his mouth, that often lacked faith and denied Jesus three times, Jesus turned his story around and used it for his incredible purposes. And you know what this tells me? Like God even uses complete boneheads for his purposes. Like God is in the business of redeeming and restoring and using boneheads for his kingdom. Which to me, as I look out at each of you, this is so encouraging. <laughs> oh, you're not all boneheads, just some of you. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, I, listen, I, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care how many times you've I, I make my laugh myself laugh sometimes. <laughs> I don't care how many times you've messed up. I don't care how many times you've denied Jesus or lacked faith. Because listen. Jesus is in the business of redeeming stubborn boneheads and using boneheads for his purposes. Like college students, young pros, I don't care how many times you've messed up and done bonehead things, listen to me. Today's a new day. God wants to use you. Parents, I don't care how many times you've done things in parenting that you should not have done, guess what? Today is a new day. And get this, God wants to and will use you in the life of your children. Those in the corporate world, I don't care how many times you've messed up and made mistakes. Guess what? God loves to teach us and use those mistakes to grow us and mature us. Retirees and empty nesters, guess what? You've got years of mistakes doing bonehead things too that our young church can learn from. You know what that's called? Wisdom. Like we need you to help our people in our church. And you know what else I know? <laughs> you still do bonehead things too. And, and you, know what I, you know how I know that? Because the Christian life is not perfect. Nobody is perfect. The Christian life is filled with setbacks and mistakes and moments of unbelief. But guess what? God still uses us anyways. I mean, how encouraging. And in the process, he grows us and he continues to mature us. God lets us do bonehead, us boneheads do bonehead things and shows us we can't do it on our own and that we are desperate for Jesus. Yes, Peter denied Jesus, but God also used Peter to be one of the most influential leaders that God used after Jesus died. Again, God turned a dark moment and used it to shine the light of Jesus brighter. Why? Because that's what God does. God is in the business of turning our mistakes into a greater maturity. But let's keep reading to see what Jesus does with our last guy, the high priest. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me uh, heard what I said to them. 
They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Anison sent, sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, which leads us to number three, the high priest questioned Jesus. You know, verse 19, it says the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus uh, defended himself, saying he had been teaching openly in the synagogues and in the temple, that he has nothing to hide, and then says, ask those who have heard him teach that they know his teaching. And then Jesus got hit in the hand with, his, with the hand, saying, is that how you talk to the high priest? And then Jesus defended himself again, and they, they then sent him bound up and arrested back to Caiaphas. And in all of what we just read, I find this fascinating what has happened with the high priest. Because let's think about this for a second. Because you know who was supposed to be, what was supposed to be the role and the duties of the high priest? The high priest, they were to offer sacrifices for sins on behalf of God's people to God. They were supposed to be the mediator between God and man. God would come to judge the people and the high priest would stand in their place offering sacrifices for the people. Like they were kind of like the lawyer for God's people mediating for them to God. Like the high priest would intercede and be a representative to God for the people. That's what the high priest was supposed to do. But Caiaphas, he didn't do that. The high priest during Jesus' time was more of a political role, acting as a mediator, speaking to the Roman government on behalf of the Israel nation. And when things within the nation of Israel seemed to cause turbulence between the nation of Israel and the Roman government, the high priest would then step in. So he was more of a political mediator to keep the peace with the Roman government, and in doing so, he questioned Jesus. Like he clearly did not have confidence in Jesus because Jesus was causing a bit of a ruckus as we've seen over the past several weeks and months. He was healing the sick and raising the dead and people wanted to crown Jesus as king. So Caiaphas, the high priest, he was not interceding for Jesus. No, he was questioning Jesus. And it wasn't for like clarification. They were questions that showed a lack of trust and confidence. And listen, I know there's a difference. Because I'm a naturally curious person. I like to have full understanding of things, and so I ask a lot of questions. I know the difference between a, hey, I don't understand this. Can you help me understand? And a, hey, I'm asking you these questions because I don't trust you. And I don't have a confidence in you. Like, there's a difference. And Jesus was being questioned by the high priest because the high priest saw that this his own little political kingdom was potentially in trouble. The high priest was questioning Jesus because of his idolatry of his own kingdom. He didn't trust Jesus because he saw Jesus as a threat to his power and his ideals. The high priest wasn't on Jesus' side, and because of that, Jesus was put on the stand being interrogated by the guy who was supposed to be his mediator. And you know what saddens me about all of this? There are many people today all over our world that see Jesus, who is now our great high priest, as Hebrews tells us. There are many people that see Jesus like Caiaphas and think Jesus is here to question our every action. Thinking Jesus puts us on the stand and interrogates us, maybe thinking, why did you do this? Or why did you do that? Like, what is wrong with you? Why do you keep on sinning? But New City, listen, we can praise the Lord today because in the gospel, this is totally false. 
Because those who have placed their faith in Jesus, who have trusted in the finished work at the cross, those who believe that Jesus has done everything necessary to save you by going to the cross and dying for your sin. Listen, for those who are in Christ, Jesus came to be a better high priest than Caiaphas, a far better, eternally better, and extravagantly different high priest. We have a great high priest in Jesus that does not look down on us to question us like Caiaphas did. No, as Hebrews 4 tells us, we have a great high priest in Jesus who is able to sympathize with us. He knows what we've been through and he knows the weight of this world and he does not look down on us and question us. No, he draws near to us so that we can then draw near to God. Listen, he, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't come to us questioning everything we do. He doesn't come to us saying, why did you do this? Or why did you do that? Saying, what is wrong with you? You know why he doesn't ask us those questions? Because he doesn't have to. He already knows the answers. He already knows us. He knows our thoughts. He knows every intention we've ever had. And you know what he does for us anyways? Well, he knows everything inside of us. You know what Jesus does for those who place their faith in him? Uh, he pleads to God for us on our behalf. Like Jesus knows everything about you, the good, the bad, the ugly, and he has compassion on you, and he goes before God and says, God, help them. God, transform them. God, do a work in their life. And guess what? God listens to Jesus. And you know why? Because those who have put their faith in Christ, God looks at us and he doesn't see the things that deserve questioning. He doesn't see all the wrongs we've done. No, he sees us as he sees Jesus as his perfect, spotless, sinless, beloved child. As God's children, Jesus doesn't question us. No, he fights for us. That's the beauty of the gospel. When we trust in Jesus, we gain Jesus' identity before God. We're a new creation. We're his children Listen, when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't only endure Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial and the high priest's questioning. No, he did far more than that. He took each of those on for every person all over the world, including you and me. And at the cross, Jesus took our betrayal of our sin. He took our denial when we lack faith. He took our questioning of God. Listen, Jesus took it all. Jesus is not like Judas that betrays. No, Jesus is the exact opposite. Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. New City, Jesus is not like Peter who denies and turns away in fear. No, Jesus is steadfast, immovable, and no matter the circumstance, he stands by us and he claims us as his own, always. Listen, there's nothing you can do if you are in Christ that will ever cause Jesus to say, they're not mine. Why? Because the cross has secured you to be his child forever. There's nothing you can do that would call Jesus to question you like Caiaphas questioned Jesus. You know why? Because like I've said, he already knows everything about you. And he went to the cross and he died. Anyways, seeing it all. He saw everything in your life and in my life and said, I will rescue you anyways. I will come after you. Why? Because that's what God does. And so as we close down our time, I want you to think about these three guys, Judas, Peter, and the high priest. All were supposed to be on team Jesus. All three of them messed up, but the one of them had a redemption story. Peter was different. And you know what the difference was for Peter? After it was all said and done, he simply trusted in Jesus. 
And so let me ask you, do you trust Jesus? Like how will your story end? Will your story end like Judas and the high priest or end like Peter who later became fearless in faith? Listen, church, Jesus, trusting in Jesus is the difference. Let's pray. God, you, because of the cross, God, we have so much to celebrate. God, because of what you've done for us through the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, God, we, ha- we can have a redemption story. God, I'm praying that this would be a room full of redemption stories, that we would hear story after story after story of how God is continually changing us and molding us and making us fearless in faith. God, you are our great high priest that is interceding for us on our behalf. And so, Father, I pray that we would trust that, believe that, and know that. If there's someone here today that has not put their faith in Jesus, God, I pray that they would do it today and tell someone. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.